Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. I'm interested in the crossover between landscape architecture, agriculture and ecology because I can see how two of those overlap. There's some synergies or some concepts that put two of those together, but I don't see anywhere that puts all three together. Hey there, thanks for joining me. Today, I'm very excited. I got to chat with David Holmgren a week or so ago, and it's so cool to be able to bring you this episode. He's a connector of so many guests on this podcast, to name a few, Patrick Jones, Samuel Alexander, Maria Cameron, Jordan Osmond, and my own sister, Rachel Murray. He is the co-originator of the concept of permaculture, which he did with Bill Mollison about 40 years ago, or over 40 years ago in Tasmania, which could be, and I think perhaps is up there with the most important ideas to ever come out of Australia. I love how he brought three distinct ideas together in such an original way to come up with the concept of permaculture. And I consider him a master of subtle disruption. In the way his idea, or this idea, has spread around the world over this time and how people have made it their own and have brought their own experience and expertise to it. And not only that, but he has lots of new ideas for how small changes can aggregate into really big, important changes for the uh, systems that we live in within today. It was excellent to spend time with him and his partner, Sue, on their property in uh, Hepburn. And his latest project is all about, which we talk quite a bit about, is about applying the principles of permaculture to the suburban context where most of us, or most of us in Australia, I suppose, still live today. I'm Adam Murray. And today I'm speaking with David Holmgren on the subtle disruption of ideas. Yeah, David, it's great to be sitting here chatting with you. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Oh, it's uh, great to be in the greenhouse with a tiny amount of um, solar gain after yeah. a week of uh, no sun. <laughs> <laughs> and minimal heat as well as we've been Oh, well, yeah, the house is just ticking over on... Um, uh, ambient gain from cloudy <laughs> weather because we've had our uh, wood stove out of action uh, with major reconstructions, which are uh, not the smartest thing to do uh, with winter coming on, but yeah. uh, <laughs> that's, that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Just to paint the picture for listeners as well, this is Hepburn here, is that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is part of the twin towns of Dalesford and Hepburn Springs. We've been here for... Uh, over 30 years in passive solar house that we built ourselves on two and a quarter acres of land uh, called Meliodora, yeah. where we run guided tours and live, I suppose, a more self-reliant lifestyle than uh, most people we know, yeah. uh, growing more of our own food and other things, but it's also a centre for our uh, publishing business and uh, teaching in, in permaculture. Yeah. When you say passive solar, what does that mean? Uh, it means 
the house is collecting sun and being heated without the use of pipes, pumps and active devices. Mm. Uh, but it's just the arrangement of glass, windows, thermal mass to capture and store the heat when it's there yeah. uh, from the sunshine in the winter and uh, re-release it from the thermal mass, in our case of mud brick walls and mud brick floor. Yeah. Of course, it could be any masonry materials. And to exclude uh, the sun in the summer with eave overhangs and vegetation and have appropriate venting so you can have a house which collects a huge amount of sun in the winter Um, and uh, gets this house gets about 80% of its heating needs uh, from that passive solar yeah wow yeah which is you know a climate which is Melbourne's cloudiness combined with Canberra's cold which (laughs) is not the ideal you know place in southern Australia for Passive solar design, yeah. but still way better than somewhere like Western Europe, where yeah. the maximum you can get with this type of design is about 30%. Right. A lot of places in southern Australia, it's not that difficult to design and build houses that get 100% of their heating, yeah. winter heating needs yeah. from the passive solar design. Yeah, well, just a, a few um, thoughtful design well, there are some key elements yeah. that have never been incorporated into the five-star rating system like orientation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's got to be within 20 degrees of an east-west axis with a long wall uh, facing north. Yeah. You know, that's the most important thing. And then yeah. you can do things like whether it's an existing building or built from scratch, you can have greenhouses on the north side and yeah. um, all of that. Solar gain, but as Sue says, passive solar, active humans means the house is more. Even though it doesn't have machinery to make that work, it needs you to open vents, close curtains, yeah, do yeah. all those things at the right time. Of course, you can do that in any average house and improve the thermal performance enormously. A lot of people don't. They didn't grow up doing it. They just grew up switching something switching on the heater and switching on the air conditioner. Yeah. But it does require you to be active. I mean, in theory, all that can be automated these days. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think it's a, a nice saying, passive solar, active humans. Yeah, it's good. I do notice in my own house when I close the curtains how much warmer yeah. the place stays. Yeah, well, it's amazing. a passive solar house is like a way more powerful machine that if you do all those things, it all works well. But if you don't, you know, or, or do the opposite behaviours, it can run off the rails big time. Yeah. You know, you can get something that's incredibly hot in the summer and yeah. cold in the winter because you, you've been, you know, if you were doing the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah. So you've got a lot more leverage to manage the thing with, with appropriate design than you have in the average house. Yeah. And then outside this house... At, I guess the wider property here at Meliodoro. You've been here for 30 years, as you were saying, and you took me on a quick tour. There's an amazing amount of design and consideration and thought that's going in, gone into this over that period of time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was designed from scratch as a, a permaculture property design. I'd had, you know, a lot of experience um, even back then. I'd, I'd had uh, more than a decade of 
um, experience intensive in permaculture design that threw myself into uh, uh, working on this place. Yeah. Uh, but it, of course, has also evolved a lot. So there's a lot of things that have come about over time through learning process, through changes, mm. um, especially in the biological field. But the built field, the house, is also been something which has evolved and changed a bit. And, of course, there's cycles <laughs> like we've been dealing with of stove <laughs> yeah. uh, renovation and repair of maintenance cycles. So we've been through, yeah, quite a lot of uh, stages in yeah. the place. And it's also changing in terms of the residents because we now share the property We're with another couple with uh, their young son. So there's a, a younger generation of energy here and that's good because there's, um, you know, six goats and a mob of chooks and yeah. geese and 180 fruit and nut trees. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're self-reliant lifestyle, it's a serious part of your working day, week and year is devoted to that. Yeah. Um, you know, I used to say that, in the early days, we used to, I used to manage this place with three days full-on work a day uh, a week, and Sue doing uh, one day a week, which was mostly animals. But the amount of work has actually gone up because actually you're harvesting more stuff. And, yeah, you know, pe- people have sometimes said in permaculture, "Oh, there's no work," you know, which is <laughs> sort of bullshit actually. <laughs> but it, it often the the, the second line is, except harvesting. Well, actually, harvesting is a lot of work. We just did the <laughs> olive pick and, you know, we got 180 kilos. Wow. And that was me and six volunteers, you know, because some of our trees are quite tall mm. and, you know, they're not the optimal harvesting. And, you know, that only produces, you know, a bit over 20 litres of oil. Oh, which is, yeah. Yeah which makes you uh, very particular about how much oil you <laughs> yeah. use when you uh, do that sort of work. But, uh, yeah, we're also harvesting fajoas, which are like a guava midwinter fruit that grows well yeah. here. And this year I think it's going to be something like 300 kilos of uh, guava. So we sell quite a lot of those. But yeah. uh, we've never had surplus olive oil to, no. <laughs> to sell. <laughs> How much of what you consume here in terms of food comes from what you produce? Well, even back in 94, when we went on a six-month teaching and study tour through Europe, through permaculture and related networks, there were two places we went in that six months where we ate more food from the property and the local food network than what we were doing here in 94. Now, we still probably are more self-sufficient in food than anyone else we really know. But, you know, all of our grains and quite a lot of our legumes and, you know, various special things are still purchased, but most of those are purchased through direct um, uh, relationships with farmers. Yeah. So um, we haven't been into a supermarket for a decade, and when we did, it used to be for soap and toilet paper. Yeah. Uh, so it never goes to the, the supermarket. Yeah. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, we still do, you know, there's a significant, especially when you look at it in terms of energy density, uh, in terms of monetary value, pretty much all the fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, 90% of our dairy products are goat dairy, our eggs, and any meat we eat is wild meat um, or the byproducts of raising our own animals like male kid goats. Um, but uh, we don't eat uh, a, a lot of meat. Um, and, yeah, things like olive oil, our olives haven't been particularly productive in this climate and we've still purchased, you know, olive oil through our, you know, farmer, grower yeah. uh, connections. Yeah. So it's also, you know, building a parallel food system that now is sort of deeply cultural for us because mm. we've been at it for so long uh, that it's just the the way you naturally do things. So we've had seasonal garden here for, you know, all of those years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we didn't aim to be self-sufficient. It's sort of just like a really, yeah, we want to produce some stuff but gradually get better at it and gradually, yeah, it became, yeah, this is a thing to do more of. Yeah. I wanted to go back a bit more into the history of permaculture, if we can mm. do that. Um, I think you describe yourself as the co-originator of permaculture. What mm. do you mean by that term, to start as co-originator? Yeah. Co-originator of the concept. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just a simple fact of history that Bill Mollison and I were the co-authors of Permaculture One, yeah. which was published almost exactly... Uh, Later this year will be 40 years wow, yeah. since the publication of Permaculture One in 1978. Uh, I met Bill Mollison in uh, late 74 uh, when he was a senior tutor in the psychology faculty at Taz University. Yeah. I didn't know he was there. I met him actually at the design school where I was a student, right. which was the at the College of Advanced Education, the other tertiary institution in Hobart at the yeah. time. And I was studying a course called Environmental Design, yeah. which I believe was probably the most radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history. Wow, yeah. Uh, How did that get off the ground? <laughs> uh, it was one of those things of the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> it ran actually from 1970 to 1980 and then it was emasculated and turned back into a conventional design course. Yeah. So it um, had a, uh, an undergraduate three years um, to a generalist degree in environmental design and then specialising in architecture, landscape architecture or urban planning. Yeah. It was set up by Barry McNeil, who was Hobart architect who did a Churchill Fellowship study to the United States studying design and education mm and came back basically and uh, set up the school. He took actually the old architecture school at the Hobart Tech College and to the new College of Advanced Education as it was then. And he said, there's no point in teaching design professionals a particular set of skills because by the time they come to practice, the world will have changed so much that those skills will be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And you have to teach them how to problem solve and how to think. Yeah. 
And consequently, there was no curriculum. (laughs) There was no fixed curriculum. There was a third of the staff budget was for visiting professionals and uh, outside people. Wow. Um, The department functioned as a consultant to government, which has become more common, that sort of thing. Undergraduate students could work with postgraduate students on uh, different projects. Yeah. Uh, The postgraduate um, level, you had to have a job in the field, so it was compulsory part-time. There was self-assessment at each semester up until submission of a thesis, and then that (laughs) thesis was assessed by a panel that included your own supervisor, the head of the department, an outside professional that they selected and one that you selected. Yeah. Uh, as an undergraduate student, I was on a panel that chose new staff. <laughs> yeah, and there was no incredible. fixed timetable. So it attracted all of the radicals and dropouts from all of the architecture and planning and landscape architecture schools around Australia. Yeah. So much so that two-thirds of the people there in Hobart were not from Tasmania. Yeah. Whereas back then, you know, most people went to university in yeah. their own state. They weren't as sort of like mobile as people are today. Yeah. So it was a centre of, you know, all this radical ideas. And I was towards the end of my first year in environmental design when I met this guy who was just a, a participant in a seminar at environmental design. I didn't know him at all. I later discovered he had a, um, was slightly infamous <laughs> in the academic scene in, in Tasmania. He had the largest number of people came to his lectures of anyone at the university. He was never more than a senior tutor, actually. Really? Yeah. And he ran a course that was, people called it just Bill Mollison's course. I never went to one of his lectures, but it was sort of a cross between, I suppose, sociobiology and environmental Um, psychology Um, but I was interested in him because hearing him speak I thought this guy thinks like what I thought an ecologist what ecology was about yeah whereas most of the academically trained ecologists I met just I just thought they were reductionists so, so you thought more systemically is that what you mean or yeah 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 and holistically that was there an actual science that was holistic rather than non-science is the only way to mm. get beyond reductionism? Yeah. And, of course, ecology was the great promise of science that was scientific, but it was holistic. Yeah. And I didn't see that, you know, in the, in the people that I'd come across mostly. Yeah. They're mostly botanists and zoologists yeah. who were rebranding themselves as ecologists because... Ecology was the fashion science yeah, yeah. in the 70s. There weren't many actual <laughs> ecologists, or as I think of them, systems ecologists, yeah. uh, people who really influenced my thinking, like Howard Odom. Um, of course, systems ecology later, I suppose, part of the Thatcherite-Reaganite revolution in the 80s is all the great promise of this sort of systems ecology was sort of pushed aside, and it was certainly partly there'd been a lot of big claims that didn't really eventuate about ecology becoming a predictive science, you know, that you could understand if you did this in an mm. ecosystem, mm. then this would happen. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, 
And of course, Mollison was not really an academically trained anything. I mean, he he only ever had um, one degree, but he majored in nine subjects simultaneously. Before that, he was a wildlife researcher employed by CSIRO, by the scientists in CSIRO, because he was a rabbit trapper. Mm. Left school at 14, totally uneducated. Wow. Um, Brought up in Tassie. Yeah, bushman, um, uh, fisherman. Yeah. Uh, so it was all those things and a barroom fighter and, you know, like a, a wild man. <laughs> yeah. By the time I met him, he'd sort of mellowed a little bit. <laughs> uh, but people still said, you're living at Bill Mollison's place. What's he like to live with? Uh, and I was very young and self-effacing and he did and, you know, through his uh, long life had a lot of character flaws and clashed with a lot of people and had five wives. And, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and in some ways he was a tragic figure, tragic genius, you know, that, um, but absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And um, so I moved into his house, um, shared house with him and uh, his then second wife. And uh, at the end of that first year, it was towards the end of my first year in environmental design, and he said, uh, you know, what are you, what are you wanting to work on? And I said, well, I think landscape architecture is sort of attracting me more as a, of a profession, though I didn't really see myself becoming a professional landscape architect, but more than architecture and urban planning, I was more interested in the biological, I suppose. Yeah. And I said, I'm interested in the crossover between landscape architecture, agriculture and ecology, because I can see how two of those overlap. There's some synergies or some concepts that put two of those together, Mm. but I don't see anywhere that puts all three together. Yeah. Uh, and he said, oh, that's interesting. He says, well, how about this for an idea? And, of course, he was always full of ideas. You know, it was another idea. He was that sort of person. Yeah. And he said, if most places in the world, nature creates a forest as more or less optimal ecosystem that maximises power, builds soil, you know, creates biodiversity. I mean, not everywhere, you know, there's grasslands too and tundra and desert ecologies and all sorts of things. But, you know, most places nature creates a forest as its sort of destination. Mm. Um, Why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, at least function like a forest? And I said, oh, that's perfect. You know, that's a question that is a design question. So it's using design thinking yeah, and it's looking at the principles of ecology and how they can be applied to design and ecology applied to agriculture. Yeah. And that, I state, is the seed of the permaculture concept. Wow. So that was late. That would have been November 74. Yeah. And then I spent the next two years because of the nature of environmental design People didn't really know what I was working on and thought it was a bit weird that I hardly ever came to the <laughs> college and, you know, and that I didn't, after doing a lot of diversity in what I was studying in the first year, that I was just seen obsessed with this thing that they didn't understand, which was the permaculture manuscript. 
And it was 75. Of course, Bill was talking to his students about the ideas and, and he proposed, I mean, I wouldn't have had the hubris to coin a term, but he said, David, I think we need a, a term to describe what we're talking about because, you know, there isn't. And, he, you know, and so here was his idea and came up with the, the word. And that would have been 75. We just unearthed, actually, a copy of the West Australian Nut Growers Association that Bill was a member of. And that's the first printed reference we know to permaculture. Yeah. We just discovered that and I'd forgotten all about that. But um, the first published article was in... Um, the Tasmanian Organic Gardener and Farmer magazine and Bill was a founding member of the Organic Gardening and Farming Society which started in 1972 and that article which was joint article co-authored by us was in 76 but I was working on this manuscript this very substantial manuscript and at the end of the three years after I'd used my own unpublished manuscript as my primary reference for my <laughs> thesis, which was a property design. So right. uh, because yeah. the thesis had to be six months' work, so I couldn't include this 18 months' yeah. work on this manuscript, but I, I had the audacity to use it as a primary <laughs> reference. But at the end of that, of course, I passed and I was one of the few who did because there was incredibly high dropout rate because <laughs> yeah. people couldn't cope with the freedom of yeah. environmental design. But I was just sick of desk work and wanted to get out and do things with my hands. Yeah. Whereas Bill was sort of tiring of the university and looking for a larger stage and, you know, I was working with a mate of mine who was the same age as me, 19, uh, running his own building business and learning lots and enjoying it, and he'd pester me, you know, like, oh, what about the permaculture manuscript, David? And I said, oh, it needs a lot of work, you know, sitting in a drawer or something. And it probably would have just stayed in a drawer if it hadn't been, you know, Bill pestering me about it. And he said, why don't you give it to me and I'll edit it and, you know, get it published, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I handed over to him. He wrote some additional sections, edited I supervised some drawings, which were actually done originally, the original drawings were done by Janet Mollison, his oldest daughter, who was same age as me. And I think it was uh, 76 was also the first radio interview with Robin Ravlich on what would have been the precursor to Radio National. Mm. Uh, we were in the Hobart ABC studio, me and Bill and Robin Bell, which was in Sydney. Yeah. And so that was 76. And 77, Bill really started spruiking the ideas a lot and was on ABC uh, radio in Melbourne with Terry Lane, who at the time was the most popular radio announcer on in Melbourne. And as a result of that, there was something like 150 letters or something from people really? interested. Yeah. And six mainstream publishers approached an unknown and cantankerous academic and a completely unknown graduate student wanting to publish the manuscript. Yeah. So that's what I say to young people. What was going on in 1977 for that to be possible? Yeah. Because it was. Like until recently, there's been nothing over the last 40 years that matches what was going on in the late 70s, which was 
really that first great wave of modern environmental thinking that had both the oppositional side and the positive creative side. And I relate that to the oil crises, the first emerging evidence of, you know, the really severe environmental impacts and a whole lot of other geopolitical and economic factors and the counterculture at the time that was, you know, allowing all of those things to come to the surface. So the timing was fantastic. 1978 was a great year. (laughs) (laughs) I was born in 77. Ah, Well, there you go. (laughs) I want to pause you there for a second because I think that's a really interesting point that we can refer to in regard to Retro Suburbia as well, yeah. the book that you've just yeah. written. But before we get to that, a couple of reflections on that amazing story. Just um, I guess the combination of you and Bill and the, the complementary skills or personalities that you had that enabled that idea to come into being that probably wouldn't have happened if it was just one of you. I think uh, yeah, well, of course, yeah. Bill... Apart from tending to sort of write me out of history because that was one of his sort of faults of his uh, <laughs> ego arrogance, but he, in his own terms, saw that the origin point was his journal when he was working on wallaby research in the Florentine Valley in the, in the rainforest in Tasmania. And he had a bit of a breakthrough this one day of understanding what wallabies were doing in spreading beneficial fungi around the forest. And, and he wrote in his journal, this is really not so complex. We could design one of these. Yeah. Now, that was 1958. Wow, yeah. You know, so he dates that as the origin of permaculture, but it, it took the 1970s and yeah. for me to come along, because Bill was the sort of person who just had a million ideas. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, yeah, he's a big, expansive thinker and... I mean, he was a bushman and practical, but, you know, I pretty quickly learnt that he was not really an expert at anything he did. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as he was sort of like could um, get the gist of something, he was on to the next thing. Yeah. So I was a bit more persistent mm. in spite of being a generation younger than him. And I think there was that complementarity that I was in this design Milieu, and he was really, even though he was teaching psychology, I mean, he was really an ecologist. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that was his passion and his knowledge-grounded knowledge base. But, yeah, the character difference, I mean, he was a much more competent academic researcher than I was. He'd sort of, you know, come home with books. He'd say, oh, I found this in the library. It's got this stuff in it. Mm. So he was feeding me stuff all the time. Mm you know, while I was working on this stuff. But, of course, there was a version of history that he told at various times that I just did the species index or something. And then as people sort of realised that that wasn't the truth, a flip story happened of, you know, it was all my brilliant ideas and he was the academic who stole the students' work. But it's really hard to understand the relationship because... Yes, he was an academic and I was a, a student, but he had no formal relationship. <laughs> it was one where yeah. I selected him as, as mm. the teacher, so he was my mentor. Yeah. So, yeah, those two extreme stories, neither of them is true of the yeah. real synergy. And that's why I, I describe myself as the co-originator of yeah. the concept. Yeah. But I acknowledge Bill Mollison as the father of the permaculture movement because 
I wouldn't have sort of taken it the you know the direction he did through the the brilliance of the teaching system and the whole mm. developing if you like a tribe of of like-minded people. Yeah. And that was the genius that took the ideas out beyond just academia and a few students to sort of like a really living movement. Yeah. And because I just stood by and watched all that process, which I've written about in the essay, my piece in the book Permaculture Pioneers, where I describe why, what was my reaction and scepticism, you know, to the... Uh, you know, the hoo-ha that there was in the late 70s about these ideas and the connection to the counterculture and, and you know, we're going to remake the world in, for a two-week design course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, a million other naive yeah. things that uh, I didn't necessarily sort of agree with or whatever. So I was an observer and a sceptic in some ways of the permaculture movement in its first decade before I was drawn back into it you know, in the sense that I became, you know, teaching it. But I always described my work as permaculture when I set up uh, Holmgren Design Services in 1983. I described what I was doing as permaculture, even though I, yeah, had a lot of scepticism about a lot of things that were being done in the name of permaculture. Yeah. But I learned to, you know, very early on to let go. Like, this is its own evolving thing and... You know, it's only in more recent decades that I've sort of exercised some sort of collaborative leadership role in in that movement. Because you felt more comfortable? Uh, Yeah, and, of course, people were coming back to me wanting to find that source, that connect, rather than just a lineage of students of students of mm. students of Mollison's, you know, there was an interest that, well, who was this other person? Yeah. And that became much stronger after publication of Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability because to some extent I had a reputation in the permaculture movement of being a, a quiet practitioner that Bill was the big ideas man and the spruker and the mm. teacher and I was the practical doer. And... You know, there was a certain amount of, a segment of truth to that, but people didn't realise that, yes, I was an abstract thinker too and that, in fact, my practice was part of keeping my feet on the ground in the soil so that it didn't drift away into into the sky sort of effect. So when Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability was published, which a lot of people would say is very abstract and, you know, quite challenging reading you know a lot of people went oh (laughs) there was a greater recognition yes I was you know the co-originator of of these ideas yeah Um, so yeah of course 40 years is a long time and a lot's happened and you know myself most people actively involved in permaculture have never you know met or been taught by me or Bill Morrison Mm. you know it's a whole evolving movement around the world. And, yeah. And in Australia only represents a tiny part of that now. Yeah. The, just to, before, I've got a couple of other questions before we yeah. go forward again. When you were putting together the manuscript, were you practising at all at that time or was it all theoretical? Ah, well, 
we were developing, I suppose, the first permaculture garden at Mollison's place, which was like our place, a couple of acres on the edge of sort of suburbia into the bush of Mount Wellington yeah. in South Hobart and building an extensive garden. And Bill was always finding new plants. So there was a big economic botany part of it, you know, these different rare plants, you know, perennials and trees and different things. So that was a very much a, a strong part of it. So, yeah, I just worked between the manuscript and the garden, yeah. the manuscript and the, the garden, the property. So there was that balance all the time yeah. between the two. And that was really important to me and has always been important to me, the, the balance between the, yeah. the theory and the practice. Yeah. Have you come across a similar concept that's been in place or emerged elsewhere around the world? Well, at the time, we were aware and influenced by a lot of the traditionally evolved polycultures of the world, especially in the tropics, but also elsewhere, and strongly influenced by Indigenous land use. We knew not necessarily the extent of what's been uncovered with people like Bruce Pascoe and uh, Bill Gamich's work, but we understood Aboriginal people managed the land. It was a cultural landscape managed for productivity as well as biodiversity and many things. Um, But in terms of conscious design, the only evidence we had of consciously designed landscapes for productivity was really the work of P.A. Yeomans' key line farming concept, which of course was developed in Australia in the 1950s. And so Yeomans' work was a huge seminal influence on permaculture and really built on on that. There was also the early experiments uh, with tree crops and all of the different potential that could be part of our food supply and agriculture. And that was happening in other parts of the world as well. In the 70s, we were aware and referenced a few of those. Um, an author and researcher, Sholto Douglas, and uh, Robert Hart, who later went on to develop the forest garden uh, concept in Britain, which people strongly relate to, to permaculture. Um, and, of course, a huge number of traditional farming systems had elements of what we would call permaculture, so much so that, you know, a lot of people from those traditional cultures, if permaculture was explained to them, they would say, well, isn't that just common sense? And part of the answer to that is, yeah, but it's no longer common. (laughs) Yeah. But there was also an element of innovative design of how we can take something from another culture, another context that's now relevant to a local situation because the environment has changed. So, for example, in Australia, one of our vernacular sort of technologies that we take for granted here is water harvesting in earth dams and in water tanks. It's just everywhere. It's part of rural vernacular culture. But go to many other places in the world where there's been strong flowing rivers, good quality groundwater, springs, 
rainwater harvesting in that way is unknown. Yeah. And so permaculture teachers might introduce that as, you know, and locals might go, oh, yeah, permaculture's about collecting water in rainwater tanks and, and dams. But if you said to an, a rural Australian, oh, permaculture's about, you know, collecting water, <laughs> you know, yeah, so what? <laughs> Everyone does that. Yeah. You know, whereas in southern Italy, if you said to local small farmers, oh, permaculture is about uh, growing vegetables and trees together, integrated with small livestock. People go, yeah, so what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, all the old people did that. Yeah. So in different places, the sort of elements or parts or strategies of permaculture are actually just completely normal. Yeah. But often those things can then be taken to other environments where the environment has changed or where they're now needed. So, you know, on courses in Europe, people say, can you collect water off the roof? Is it safe to drink? You know, yeah. like there's a whole lot of things. Yeah, how's yeah. this done? Yeah. You know, because there's no, you know, it hasn't been done before. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, we're also influenced by ecological thinking that was emerging at the time. The, the work of the New Alchemy Institute in the United States was one of the closest things we could see to permaculture. They were looking at, in continental climate, big um, greenhouses where you grow food with fish in tanks, mm. aquaculture, yeah. you know, like uh, John Todd's work. He was one of the people that developed the living machine concept later. Well, that all started at the New Alchemy Institute yeah, okay. in the 70s. Yeah. But they saw the Permaculture One when it was first published in Australia and said, oh, this is a framework for what we're actually doing. Yeah. You know, and when we got that feedback from them, you know, like for me, that was one of the biggest ticks that yeah. we weren't just out on some weird limb with, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, crazy ideas because, you know, there were other people who were sort of thinking along the same lines. Yeah. But last question about that time. Did any other really fascinating, interesting ideas pop out of that environmental design course as well, given the such different way that things were taught? Well, there was a whole lot of early involvement in um, public participation in planning processes, like city planning yeah. that hadn't sort of really been uh, done before. There was a lot of ideas about demountable buildings buildings put together with modern fastening systems. Mm. That, um, and, of course, all the ideas of passive solar design, uh, natural materials that we would sort of partly associate with permaculture but also not, and empowered owner building and all of those things were very strong there. We had George McRoby uh, lecturing there who was a colleague of E.F. Schumacher at the Intermediate Technology Institute in Britain, who was sort of like E.F. Schumacher wrote Small is Beautiful, you know, in 1973, which is one of the seminal texts, you know, that influenced our thinking and, yeah. you know, by an economist that challenged the, you know, economies of scale. Yeah, so, right. you know, it's one of the really fundamental books. So, you know, there was a lot of those ideas about uh, radical economics and we're all part of the mix yeah. there, yeah, so... But Barry McNeil later said to me I didn't have a close association with the people in that 
uh, milieu, but he later said to me in 1990 that permaculture may have been the most significant thing to come out of environmental design and we didn't even notice at the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. But he did say that what I did with Mollison choosing the student choosing the teacher, he said that was exactly part of his vision, that environmental design was not a radical thing. It was going back to the ancient Greek yeah. classical uh, education where the student decides who the teacher is. So he said what you did with Mollison was exactly <laughs> what we're actually sort of trying to facilitate. Yeah, yeah. But he said we didn't realise the significance yeah. of it at the time. <laughs> That's great. So 40 years later, you've, you've written a number of books since Permaculture One. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a few things along the way. A few things but, along the way. But, uh, yeah, we've got a, a new one out, Retro Suburbia, a downshifter's guide to a resilient future. Yeah. And so the first thing I wanted to say about the book is that it's a beautifully crafted book. Like it's designed beautifully. You can yeah. uh, see, I guess your eye for design coming through in that. It's very easy to read. The diagrams are beautiful. I just, I guess, first of all, wanted to commend you on that. Like, it's a beautiful book. Ah, well, you know, most of the credit for that goes to Richard Telford, who's been working with us uh, in a collegiate way for nearly 20 years. He's the guy who designed the icons for the permaculture principles. Yeah, right. And graphic designer involved in permaculture since the late 90s as a response to the bailing out of the negative sort of side of environmentalism, trying to stop the bad stuff happening in the world and wanting to focus on the, <laughs> the positive yeah. and trying to recast his career as a graphic designer. Yeah. And, yeah, so he, he is the person who intimate lived experience. I mean, their place is one of the case studies in the book, but... It's his assembly. Obviously, there's a whole team and the way we sure. yeah. uh, saw that. But in that sense, the design of the book um, is his, but it's also emergent. I mean, we didn't know exactly what it was going to be when we started it, and it had various fits and starts and changes. It was a, a long process. So it was a very much an organic unfolding rather than a, a fixed vision of this is what it's going to be. Yeah, okay. And and that that is, in a sense, some people would say that's not designed because you didn't do it all on paper and then create it. Yeah. Well, you know, do it all in the mind, in the strategy plan, the template that like a conventional publisher would do. It's something that evolved as an unfolding living process, which relates to colleague Dan Palmer's critique of a lot of permaculture design as it being that old model of, you know, like design build, which is more or less what the design professions do Mm. and a lot of people think of as design. But there's many, many different ways to design, of course. And I suppose the book did, yeah, represent a little bit more of what, Dan Palmer might call a living design process or perhaps a permaculture design process. Yeah. Certainly very different from the way publishers do stuff of here's the template, 
it's one of these or it's one of those <laughs> or it's one of those. Yeah. You know, and it, no, it cannot be one of those. Those don't exist. Yeah. You know, like books that big with that diversity of subject material would, you know, no, we, no one publishes things like that. Well, it does cover a lot of ground and it is probably bigger than a lot of books around there. So it does, I guess it doesn't fit neatly into any of those categories yeah, that a publisher might yeah. expect them to fit into. Yeah. Which is partly why we, you know, do our own yeah. publishing because I don't accept any of those conventions of the, the publishing industry yeah. and, and the gatekeepers that, you know, still to a significant extent determine what gets published. Yeah. So to... I guess to capture the book in my own words and then mm. you can um, talk about your vision for it as well. But my understanding is I guess it's, it's taking a lot of the principles of permaculture and applying them to the context within which we're finding ourselves and perhaps what some of the influences, the key contextual influences might be over the next decade or few years, uh, particularly mm. around... I can't remember the term that you used, but it's energy... Energy descent. Descent, yeah, that's right. And I guess this is your vision for a preemptive response to that, in a way, of mm. how people can create uh, more self-resilience in response to that kind of world that may be emerging. But even if that world isn't emerging, to live in a way that enriches people's lives in terms of community and health and connection to their local context. Yeah, and that that's addressing the place where the majority of Australians live, which is yeah. in suburbia. What we mean by suburbia is separate houses on blocks of land that may be in our fringes of our capital cities, or it's in fact most of the landscape of our capital city that our cities cover, but also in regional towns or even villages. I mean, we're on two and a quarter acres here, but our neighbours are all on quarter acre blocks or smaller, and you know, it's a Suburban street. Yeah. And an even larger proportion of, it, of children in Australia are raised in those landscapes. So that's where we are and we're not going to change that by anything short of catastrophic scenarios of the most extreme sort. People are going to continue to inhabit those spaces in mm. the future. And the notion that we'll replace them with something better and bigger. It's always bigger, isn't it? <laughs> uh, in that mindset. Yeah. Even with rapid economic growth, the turnover of cities, it, it's like 100 years or more to replace the building stock. Yeah. So we're going to be facing the substantial impacts of climate change resource depletion and a host of other elements of the limits to growth with what we've got. And if one of those elements is economic contraction, which I think there's very strong evidence that a huge range of factors are setting up uh, to lead to that, to basically implosion really of the financial system, if not the economic system of the material economy, yeah. but f so much of the economy is financialized, which is all just a virtual thing. It's an imaginary thing. And if faith is lost in that in a grand way, it can just go pop Very and quickly. most yeah. of it's gone. Like most of the money doesn't exist. It's credit 
and dead. So it can just sort of like disappear virtually overnight. And a lot of the preconditions are in place for that. And of course, the last time that happened on any significant scale was the 1930s. It was avoided this time round with the GFC by unprecedented money creation, essentially, by the central banks of the world, which then precipitated the bubbles in all asset classes, including, of course, housing, which has led to the greatest transfer of wealth in, in the shortest time in history, basically through the rise in, in asset prices. So those that happen to own those assets have become incredibly wealthy on paper, mm. and those who don't are paying the, <laughs> the, the cost. So that disparity of wealth that's been created was one of the spin-offs of saving the economy from facing the music with the end of this debt-fueled uh, world. But apart from those things, even when the system is working in theory for people and GDP is growing and people have got jobs, We know from research that a huge proportion of the jobs are what the people doing those jobs themselves call bullshit jobs. Then they have no benefit to society. (laughs) And that's the assessment of the people doing them. Yeah. So what is that like for people to each day go to something that they think has no use? Yeah. And then there's all the downsides of so much economic growth we have now is uneconomic. So large numbers of intelligent, capable people have been for years downshifting, not maximising how much income they earn, but actually almost going, no, I'll go part-time, no, I'll get out of debt, no, I'll simplify my life. So that and the lineage of permaculture productivity actually fit together Mm. because Voluntary simplicity is saying, do I really need it? And permaculture is saying, in a lot of ways, oh, can we do that in the household and community non-monetary economies as a first place to do it? Yeah. So, yes, let's redesign agriculture on ecological principles, but, oh, that's a big complex thing. Let's start small. Well, where does agriculture start? Where did it come from? Oh, it didn't come from the monetary economy. People grew things for themselves. Yeah. That's what peasant farmers still do around the world. You self-provision. Yeah. And so it is an economy. It's just a non-monetary one. And, of course, when you make your lunch at home rather than buying your lunch in the shop, you are engaging in the household non-monetary economy. And, you know, the lunch might be better than the one you get in the shop. So that might be a motivation for a lot of people. You know, just, no, I like this way of doing things better and it's more efficient, you know. And, yes, we still don't pay tax on the on non-monetary productivity, things yeah. we do for ourselves. Yeah. And, and so that should be the case because when we do things for ourselves, we reduce the burden of infrastructure and facilities that have got to be provided in society to do it in the monetary economy and... For simple things like fresh food growing, food preparation and processing, uh, childcare, house maintenance, all those simple things of life are more 
efficiently done outside of the monetary economy and always were. And that the monetary economy used to be for complex, special things that you couldn't do yourself. Yeah. You know, or you couldn't exchange for someone down the street or your mates. And that was a normal way to have a monetary economy as the icing on the cake. And the deep resilience of society was in the non-monetary economy. And we know that in every economic downturn in history, people survive, if not thrive, by restarting the household in community non-monetary economies. That's how people in Russia survived the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, of course, it did help there that the Soviet supermarket system was pretty crap at providing everything that people needed and wanted. Well, certainly what they wanted. And so they all had gardens. <laughs> yeah. You know, they hadn't yeah. given up yeah. all that self-reliance totally. Even if they were apartment dwellers, you know, they had the doctor in the country with a little allotment and, you know, produced all this food over the summer and stored it and, uh, for the winter and things like that. And I'm not saying that there weren't very severe consequences for people in Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed, but people primarily didn't starve and, I mean, there were other factors too that all the housing was public, so people didn't get kicked out of their houses. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, you know, people working in a chandelier factory got paid in chandeliers, which they would stand on a railway station trying to sell chandeliers. You know, whereas no one wanted to buy chandeliers. <laughs> they wanted to buy spuds or yeah. maybe vodka. Or, you know, so that those sort of downturns, we, know, we have so many of those examples in history and we know that, like, what's happening in the United States at the moment, household size is going up. Extended families are coming back together mm-hmm. as a primary strategy for dealing with difficult conditions. Yeah. It just makes common sense. And you could say, oh, well, it'll all, that'll all happen by itself. Well, the trouble is Australia's been the richest country in the world or close to it for over 100 years. And we were settled by the first decultured, non-peasant people on the planet. You know, the, the convicts from the first industrial slums and the soldiers who guarded them. People who didn't know how to grow vegetables. Yeah you know, who weren't self-reliant. So we've had so long at being disconnected from our sources of sustenance and then we've had the supercharged affluence, debt fueled affluence of recent decades that have pulled most people further and further away from those things. So it will redevelop, but it won't be nice and pleasant, but it could be if we took advantage of the huge advantages we have. Firstly, mild climate. If you're fit and active, you can sort of live an outdoor lifestyle, even here in Hepburn Springs in a winter. Yeah. You know, so kids can play outside. The idea of crowding. The old thing was send the kids outside on the street. Yeah, we don't freeze in the winter, you know. Yeah. There's no heating. Yeah. We can grow food in garden settings with... Uh, low-density residential housing and provide some of our own needs. We've got a huge amount of public space that's amenable to doing things like going and cutting fodder for backyard goats. And we can retrofit houses to make them more energy efficient and change our behaviour. And the key thing is we've got the biggest houses in the world on average with the fewest people in them filled with all sorts of crap, 
But, you know, you can get rid of that and refit a garage as a home base workshop, making something. Yeah. You know, or, so I've incorporated all these things both in a story, sort of a permaculture soap opera I've been telling for a decade called Aussie, Aussie Street, Street. Yeah. Which is now incorporated as a, a short story, a chapter in the, in the book. And I'm doing those Aussie Street presentations as a way to introduce, I suppose, people who are not totally embedded in this way of life to, oh, yeah, this just actually connects to our suburban history and mm. it's, it's sort of a bit of a continuum or a recreation of some of those things that existed, sort of suburban self-reliance of the 1950s. Yeah. With obviously different twists and different opportunities. So now, you know, you can buy all your, get all your clothes at an op shop and you can get scrap materials that people in the 1950s would have never had available to them or never had the mentality also to, to be able to take advantage of those things. So I see these huge opportunities for people who are motivated to actually and make the change based on values and that this is a better way to live at the same time that it builds resilience to uncertain futures and potentially even lifeboats for very severe mm. futures. And at the same time, that's providing a working model that needs to be fine-tuned and adjusted to place and situation mm -hmm. that others might need to copy in more difficult circumstances. Yeah. And those people who are copying in those difficult circumstances will be not have the time or inclination to experiment. They just... I just want to copy something that works. And, you know, if someone down the street has already been tweaking that and they've got the varieties of fruit to graft onto your old cherry plum, wild cherry plum trees, and, <laughs> yeah, this is the type of compost toilet we use. We've been running it for 10 years and it works like this, but you need to remember to do this. Those, that refinement of examples that can then be copied by a wider cohort of people is the aim with Retro Suburbia. Firstly, to celebrate what people are doing as this is pro environmentally progressive, it's good for society, and it's good for us doing it. Yeah. But then that, that becomes a bit of a model that others can copy. So, like you were saying, you, ta you are targeting this more at the people who are motivated to live that way rather than people who... Yeah, it's not. It, I, I am absolutely, you know, could be accused of being elitist about this. The way I see it is that it's going from the 1% innovators and experimenters to the 10% and yeah. 20%. That's, that's the critical task. I'm not so much and never have been motivated on this thing about majority politics or majority everything, you know, that because we're so obsessed with, you know, 51% people determine government type of thing. Um, it's a delusion, I think, because a lot of the change can be quite pivotal um, if you can create a new normal mm. of a cohort of people, something like 20 to 30% of a population doing some new thing. And then it just sort of becomes normalised. Yeah. And not just for those people, because the evidence shows that the the others, the 80%, go, 
oh, oh, and they start to feel that they are the minority rather than the innovators. <laughs> yeah. And that's been shown in actually some of these sustainability street, you know, innovation things that, you know, that there's a sort of a, a critical threshold that's about 20 to 30%. Really? Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean to say that then automatically all the rest adopt it. Sure. But if the outer economic and psychosocial conditions change radically and those mm. solutions are, look so much better than what, it, what people are, are stuck in, then, then it can result in a you know, rapid change. But even if it doesn't, it's interesting that the leverage you have on the system like if 10% of the population stop shopping at moles and bullies, boy, do they notice it. Yeah. Because they have got to grow perpetually. Yeah. See, people obsessed with majority politics think, you know, you know, majority politics, if 30% of the people are voting against you, so what? You know, it doesn't matter. You can ignore them, really. You know, you're the government. But with... Moles and bullies, if they are not maximising that participation, how can the corporation grow? Yeah. How do you get people to eat more food than they're already eating? You know, there's only a few ways they can basically... Immigration and population growth. Monopoly, you know, eat your competitors. Yeah. And then the other is to try and wipe out the little crumbs of, you know, that an not fully participating in the system. So that, you know, a relatively small proportion of the population bailing out of the centralised food system, boy, they will notice that. And that's enough critical mass to build a parallel food economy. Yeah. You don't need 100%. That system needs 100%. Yeah. That's the trouble because its economies of scale, its whole lock-in around these enormously complex just-in-time logistics that keep food prices down, even if it's crap food, you know, that there's no storage in the system. It's just like in and out, mm. so three days food supply yeah. available to us or something. Yeah. Those, they need to be at that scale. It's similar, you can look at a lot of things in high-tech medicine, so, yeah, it's great to have all of these fantastic technologies, but some of them are so expensive, you need thousands and thousands of patients through to justify yeah. those machines. The sewerage system can't actually operate if 50% of the people weren't contributing to it. Yeah. You need the flushing to keep the shit moving. <laughs> it was found in Brisbane that people reacted so efficiently so significantly in the drought that there wasn't enough water flowing down the sewer to yeah. keep it all moving and the maintenance costs went up enormously. So in terms of disruption, these subtle disruptions can be actually major. Now, one reaction to that is to say, oh, well, that's a bad thing, isn't it? Because these things are essential. Well, I view centralised water-based sewerage as one of the type one errors our civilization has made. Because in a long-term future, if you are not recycling the nutrients from the food supply back to land, then 
you actually have a fundamental sustainability problem that will wipe out your civilization. Might take hundreds, might take thousands of years to wipe you out, but it will eventually. You you run out of the fertility and you run out of your own health. Mm. Now, in theory, you can get a lot of the nutrients back out of a centralised water-based sewage system, but it's really difficult and it's really hard to separate it from the heavy metal contaminants and all sorts of other things. So composting toilets are the very simple, low-cost technology which is the alternative to that. But how do we get society off the addiction to centralised sewage? Yeah. Well, you know, there's no evidence that society is actually going to take note of that in the same way that it's addiction to uh, debt-based money growth system. The evidence of history is that it grows and grows and grows and then it crashes, Mm. you know, and you get some unfortunate things and society overall learns eventually that that was a bad idea. (laughs) And, you know, so it's quite sensible for people to develop their things that suit them and it makes sense for us to recycle our human waste back through safe composting back into the garden. But it's also good for the environment and it's good for society. And even if it leads to stress, if lots of people did it, hey, there's not enough water going down the sewerage system. <laughs> yeah. Because how do we get off this addiction? Yeah. You know, we've built all this stuff and then. We have pathways where, no, you just got to sign everyone up to it. So those, if you like, subtle disruptions can turn potentially into major disruptions. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily take the majority of people doing it. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, when you look at the majority politics thing and you say, well, if you want to do something radically different to what the powers that be, as people often say, uh, want to do, uh, you need a lot more than 51%. What percentage do you need? Well, we had a recent experiment in that with the uh, um, the Iraq war. What was it, 75% of Australians or something were against going? But we still went. So for things that the system really wants to do, majority politics do. is a loser's game. It's, it's just... Ridiculous. Why would you even bother? Yeah. So that's my critique back, if you like, to conventional activism and politics. No, we're just going to create the world we do want. Yeah. And that's that was the vision at the beginning of permaculture. Yeah. Right at the beginning. Yeah. That Mollison had had four or five years on the front lines of in oppositional environmental activism. I'd come from a family of political activists. I was second generation in that. And we were both at that same point that now we're just going to go and create the world we do want. I got it. Yeah. You know, so now maybe that leads to a a progressive good change in society, but it's also um, a matter of not being too hubristic about our agency. Human systems have become so big and powerful and have enormous inertia. We like to think that if we sensibly sit down and say, oh, well, what, you know, we're on a bit of a wrong path, why don't we sort of do something different, folks, that we could do that. But history doesn't really suggest that 
you know, it looks like, oh, these people had all this evidence, but they still <laughs> hid it over the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whether it was the Easter Islanders or the Roman Empire or... So I think to some extent you do have to have a little bit more humility about, well, some things will sort of run their course, but people can creatively respond to that. Mm. And even if it doesn't lead to some large optimistic reform in society, it's still worth doing anyway. Yeah. And the last thing, of course, is that we're having more fun doing it than, you know, either oppositional activism or the so-called positive uh, side of things in the top big entrepreneurial stuff that in the sort of corporate world where you're doing creative things but you're still doing it within the straitjacket of the larger system because when you go up in scale, mm. to a fair extent, you have to, everything has to work within what the system already demands. You know, a lot of people at the bottom of society or even quite high up think, like, the Prime Minister is very, very powerful because, you know, the Prime Minister can... Yes, sort of, as long as that person works within some very, very narrow bounds. Mm. And if they don't, they just are rejected by the system somehow, by the other parties, the other players in it. And I think that's true of, of corporate level creativity too. There's some amazing things going on at that level. But a lot of it is sort of recycling the same problems with a you know, slightly different lens. Angle, yeah. Or even doing the opposite of the permaculture aphorism of that the problem is the solution. Somehow we managed to take the solution and turn it back into the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, yeah. and we sort of like look in danger of doing that with renewable energy and lots of things that, you know, without the sort of the deep underlying change, which only comes through individuals and small groups of people that can really more take control of their mm. their own destiny, even if they have very little power to project that, we still have a huge freedom to say, oh, well, I'm just going to do this, you know, and, you know, if I can work it out with my partner or a family and, you know, that the household is that first unit of economic organisation that gives you so much more capacity, especially when it's a substantial number of people that you can say, oh, we can just choose to live like this. Yeah. You know, and we still do have that freedom, so we should take it. Yeah. We have to finish up soon, yes. I think. So, But I've got um, a yes. couple of questions to ask you before we do. Yeah. The first is about, so the people that your book doesn't necessarily target the, I guess the, yeah, those people that may be a little bit curious about, you know, this way of living or some of the things you've talked about, what's a good way for them to start to explore their curiosity? Well, I think without it being too crass promotion, there's a, a, a one of the first books we published that was um, not a book by me is by uh, colleagues Annie Razor-Roll and Adam yeah. Grubb, um, The Art of Frugal Hedonism. Yes, I read that. Because yeah. it's all the little simple behaviour sort of tweaks and not the sort of changing the light bulbs and all that sort of stuff. It's It's like how to live well with less 
because of being more creative and adaptive. And it's a lot of the same thinking that that's in retro suburbia, but it's just at that sort of behaviour tweaks or hacks to people's whatever their current lifestyle is that they can yeah. do little things and, yeah, whether they're owners or renters or apartment dwellers or travellers or whatever. And, yeah, we thought this is, like, really smart yeah. thinking. And it's sort of targeted and addressed to that, you know, maybe more average and perhaps a, a, a young audience and it's written by younger people too <laughs> instead of <laughs> an old fart like me. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that's a great uh, starting point on uh, that creative thinking. Yeah, excellent. When I was speaking to Patrick and Meg, Meg who works with you, yeah, one of the things that they talked about as being, you know, one of the first things they did that really started them in earnest on their journey was simply removing bin liners from their bin. Right. <laughs> and uh, because they, they sort of realised, I think, they were getting a lot of the food from their garden and they were just like, why do we even have bin liners? And making that simple change then caused a cascading effect of other questions that they asked themselves, which I then think led to them getting rid of their car and, you know, they've got rid of their fridge, I suppose, and they've got a cellar and it's just yeah, kind of building upon things in They're pretty ways. radical. I mean, yeah. it was interesting because in our community there's a lot of quite like-minded people, you know, but over the years Sue and I have always found ourselves at the radical fringe end of things. And then I think it was um, Meg telling Sue, this was, would have been 10 years ago, that she hadn't been to the supermarket for 18 months or something. <laughs> and Sue was outraged. She said, why am I going at all then? <laughs> because it was this unusual thing of, oh, here's people more radical <laughs> than us. You yeah. know? And it was a great inspiration to see as they've radically simplified and, uh, yeah, uh, car-free and, and done a lot of things that are inspirational to uh, a lot of people. But, yeah, they, they started um, with just the, the simple yeah. things and just kept going. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> My last question is, I guess, more of a personal question and tying it back to the theme of the podcast being subtle disruption and something small that you've done in your own life or a small practice that you have that's had a really important or ongoing influence, a disproportionately large influence on what you do? Yeah, I suppose one of them is that I've never really commuted to work mm. and that I've had a home-based lifestyle. And it was something that Greg Foister in his book, Changing Gears, uh, when he stayed here, and it was the thing he picked up on, which was for him actually most challenging about our lifestyle, the idea that most days you get up and you do things where you are mm. and you don't get up and go somewhere else. And for him as a very urban person, he realised he was like, that was so deeply embedded in his being, yeah. going somewhere else each day. Yeah. You know, of course, for work and, you know, different reasons. That you, Whereas I was challenging that and saying, look, in a low-energy future, most people will spend most of their day within walking distance of where they are, you know, because um, that, that's the way it's always been. And I came to that. I suppose I was travelling around Australia, hitchhiking around Australia in 1973, 
was uh, 18 years old and I temporarily got a job in Sydney for a while and I was um, sharing house at Coogee Beach on the south side of Sydney and I had a job on the North Shore <laughs> and I was commuting by train through Central Station. And I can remember sitting on train in Central Station looking across through all the trains with all the people reading their Sydney Morning Heralds, that all, of course, have their iPhones now, yeah. but they're still there. You <laughs> yeah. know? And I thought, this is crazy. I am never, ever going to live this way. <laughs> and I never have. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like just a, a small experience, an extreme experience of commuting at a young age. And I just thought, this is a crazy way to live, to end up with so much of your life in this constant movement back and forth, back yeah, and forth. Yeah. So that's been a big one for me. Yeah, that's a great one. David, it's been so good to chat with you. Thank you for taking the time and for sharing so openly about, well, the 40 years since uh, you came up with these ideas with Bill Mollison. So thank you. Great to be on Subtle Disruptive. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. If you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.